0: We may not notice it, but we take so much from those first few years of life. In fact, scientists are just now beginning to realize that so much of who we are and how we look at the world and the things that we prioritize and cherish, how we react and how we act, so many of those habits are laid in our hearts at such a very young age. And there's nobody in that process that probably has a more hands-on approach, nobody that is more involved in that than mothers are. They are, they are there from the very beginning, and it's their God-designed talent to just pour into the hearts and the lives of children. I, I know that as dads, we love our kids. We would do anything for them. We would die for them. But there's a special connection between a mom and their children. Now, sometimes it's not as much of an emotional one as it is just an innate, deep sense of responsibility that they want to make a difference in the life of that child, that they want their child to have the very best opportunity possible. There's so much that we take from our mothers and we learn from our families. And this morning, as we kind of continue our conversation about what are the foundations of a family, what is a what is a a Christian family built on anyway. We, we're going to add yet another stone to that foundation, and that is a stone of good habits. I don't think there's a place that we learn more good habits than from our parents, and specifically from our mother. This morning, we're going to take a look at five good habits. We could probably take a look at 25, but you guys would not like that. Um, But we're going to look at five good habits that I think really kind of form that bedrock of what it means to, to to be a follower of Christ. And each of these five things are things that I believe mothers are uniquely equipped to impart into the lives of their children and to those that they have influence with. So this morning, we're just going to jump into that. We're going to take a look at each of these five, and we're going to take a look at four women from the Bible who embodied these characteristics, and not only embodied them, but passed them on to others. And the first one we're going to look at this morning is the power of having self-control. There's this powerful proverb in Proverbs 25 and verse 28 that said, A person without self-control is like a house with its doors and windows knocked out. And there's a lot of truth to that. We might, we might have a house, but when you don't have doors and windows, there's no protection against the forces from outside. There, there's nothing to keep someone coming in in the night and attacking you or nothing to keep the elements of the weather from flooding the inside of the house. And self-control acts like those protective mechanisms. We live in a world today that maybe doesn't acknowledge it or appreciate it enough, But without self-control, you're susceptible to every desire that wants to raid and ruin your life. And I think all of us will recognize that we have a few things in our heart that that really are challenging. (laughs) There's parts of us that really don't want to do what's really best for us. If you don't have self-control over your tongue, you'll talk about people, you'll say things that tear up and tear down. If you don't have self-control over money and finances you'll find yourselves in a cycle of debt that not only influences your life and get, brings stress into your life but also is one of the biggest destroyers of marriage and relationships to start with. If you're not good or if you're not uh, if you don't have self-control over your emotions you'll lose your temper. You'll find yourself saying things that you really would rather not have said and the consequence of those actions and those statements are things that you really can never walk away from. If you don't have self-control over your time, you'll, you'll find yourself living life maybe very quickly, but not accomplishing the things that you want to accomplish. Thoreau wrote in the opening words of the book of Walden that he went to Walden so that he might learn how to live life intentionally. That he might not just live life, but he might live life On purpose. And and self control helps us to do each of those things, helps us to be purposeful about what we're doing and how we're doing it. And there's a story that's found in 1 Samuel 25 of of a woman that, that we all respect, although many times we don't necessarily know her name or who she is. Her name is Abigail. And we've named a lot of kids after Abigail over the years, but Abigail was an extraordinary woman, largely in part to her great self-control. Now, Abigail's story is involved. If you've never read it, I encourage you to grab the Bible sometime this week. Open up to the Old Testament account, 1 Samuel 25. You can read all the sordid details there. I'm going to give you this morning the Cliff Notes version of the life of Abigail. Abigail was married, probably not by choice, but probably by design, to a man by the name of Nabal. The Bible describes him as being wicked, evil, and harsh. And everything that we can see about this man, Nabal, kind of confirms that from Scripture. This is a man that probably, in many ways, is a poster child for narcissism. He was worried about himself, his life, his comfort, and his possessions, and everyone else was of no concern to him whatsoever. It's fair to say that Abigail was not in an ideal marriage. And yet, how she responds to this very difficult situation is what makes her so remarkable. She controls herself, and because she is in control of herself, she ends up controlling the whole chaotic situation that's going on around her. The story really comes to a head one day when David sends and asks, for, for Nabal to provide provisions for his band of soldiers. David, at this point, is on the run. He is he has kind of collected around himself a group of 400 men that will later be described in the Bible as David's mighty men. These are some guys that are bad to the bone fighters, the kind of guys that are out on a snowy day, look down in a pit in the ground, and see a lion that slid off the trail and down into the pit, and slides down into the pit to fight the lion, just because, right? These are guys that, that that don't run from a battle, but they move toward battle. These are men of decisive action. And Nabal doesn't seem to think that he needs to give any of his stuff to anyone else, no matter how great the need. Not only does he deny him, but he sends back a fairly snarky response to this. And in the opening chapter of 1 Samuel, we find out how Abigail's self-control changes the situation because David and his 400 guys decide that they're going to go take care of this Nabal fellow and teach him to have a little respect. And the servants hear that David is coming with 400 pretty bad guys along with him. And so they go not to Nabal, the boss and the head of the home, but to Abigail. And you know why? Because they knew that Nabal was foolish. He was full of himself and he wouldn't do the right thing that needed to be done. They knew that Abigail knew how to handle these kinds of situations and she did Abigail realized you got 400 angry or hangry guys on your way. The best thing you can do is feed them. And so she sends a lot of groceries in the direction of these 400 guys. And if you've had a couple guys in your house, you know how much guys can eat. 400 of them, my goodness, right? But she sends food for these guys. They get fed. And then she goes and she meets with David and she has a conversation with him. And the beautiful thing in the story, and I'm just summarizing a big story here for you guys, is that Abigail uses The power of her words to heal wounds that Nabal had caused. She didn't go and play the victim card. She didn't sit back and say, I can't do anything about this. She she used her self-control to bring control to the chaos in the world around her. And when David visits with her, he's able to see through the lens of her grace Then disaster that would be caused by him going and trying to deal head on with Nabal and so he calls off his invading army and they go their separate ways but for Abigail that story is not over Because now Abigail has got to go and tell her husband that she had done what he should have done in the beginning, and he's going to be angry. And if you read through that rest of that text, you find out that she waits for the appropriate time. She doesn't just kind of dump it on him when she gets home. She is a wise woman, but she's special because of the amount of self-control that she exhibits. The end of the chapter ends with, Abigail t- telling Nabal what she's done and God deals with Nabal, doesn't make David or Abigail have to deal with him anymore. But Abigail is a powerful example of, of the kinds of products that come from a life that's self-control, meekness and wisdom and true strength. And she is definitely one of the most powerful examples of a biblical woman of influence. Self-control is such an empowering thing. And I know if you're a younger person in the room today that you live in a world that kind of just tells you, hey, you guys do whatever you want and just kind of go with it and kind of we give grace for for making bad choices. But guys, when you can say, I'm going to choose to remain in control of myself, it gives you an opportunity to have a powerful situation in the world that is extraordinary. The power to say no to sin comes from having something better to say yes to. I think sometimes the reason we struggle with sin so much is that we we say no to sin, but we really haven't said yes to anything greater. The power to say no to sin is being willing to say yes to something greater. And there's an equally cool story that comes from the book of Exodus at a period in the life of the Israeli people that was incredibly dark when... They were living as captives in the land of Egypt, and as they're there, their nation is being blessed by God, and they're growing and and expanding in the land of Goshen, and the Pharaoh sees this, and he's threatened by the blessing of God over their lives. And so he decides that what he needs to do is he he needs to stop this growth. The girls are handy, they're useful, but the guys, they could form an army, and so he goes to two women, and he gives them an unthinkable command. In Exodus 1 and verse 15, it says The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sapphira and Pua, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivering stool, if you see a, that, a, that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. What a dilemma! The ultimate authority in the land in which you live is telling you to do something that is unthinkable, to take the life of an innocent newborn baby. And yet, if you don't do that, you will no doubt pay dearly yourself. But I want you to notice what follows in verse 17. It says, the Hebrew midwives, however, feared God. They had said yes to something greater than the Pharaoh. they did not do what the king of egypt told them to do they let the boys live the power to say no to sin comes from the willingness to say yes to something greater and that is really the definition of self-control saying to god and saying to ourselves i will i will remain in control of myself because i want that thing which is better Living a life the way that God has called us to live our lives is the best possible way we can choose to live. The second habit I think I would like to look at this morning is the habit of gratitude. And you might not think of gratitude being a habit particularly, but it really, it is. Our minds are are kind of like a, a web browser in a lot of senses. You guys have all experienced this before. Jump on the phone, look up something, uh, you want tickets to this or that, I, I The air show is going to be in Lake Charles next weekend. So yesterday I looked up what what the tickets were and when it was going to be. And then later on that night I went back and looked for something else. And there's advertisements all over the advertisement portion of my web pages for the air show, right? Because because advertisers know that that when we're looking for something and we see more examples of it, it captivates our attention and our minds work the same way. If we're constantly looking for things that we don't have but that we want, We'll constantly see things that we don't have but think we need. But God tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. That there's a different opportunity. In Romans, the twelve chapter and verse two, Paul talks about this whole process of transformation of our minds, so that we might we might understand what God's pleasing and perfect will is. That we might understand how God wants us to live life and where God wants us to go in life. And guys, that that really what he's talking about is the process of re of reevaluating our habits. So many of the things that we do every day are things that we just kind of have been programmed to do from a very long time ago. Every morning I wake up, I'm not a morning person. So how many of you are morning? Any morning people in here? Some of you are, and I'm jealous. How many of you are not morning people? Absolutely, yeah. Nausea is the first thing that I feel every morning, right? And, uh, and, and yet, I will get out of bed, and I'm not even awake. I don't even know where I am yet. Half the time, I just dropped out of a dream when the alarm clock started ringing, and I'll reach over, and I'll start pulling up the covers on the bed. Why do I do that? Not because I want to, not because I'm aware that I'm doing it. I probably do a horrible job of making the bed. Michelle has to go back and redo it later. But the reason I do that is from a very young age. My mom taught me the first thing you do is you get up in the morning, you make your bed. It's habitual. It's written into my thought process. And these habits that we're talking about this morning can become the same way. And gratitude is certainly not an exception. Gratitude is probably one of the easiest and maybe most often overlooked ways to reconnect and reorient yourself to our creator. When you take time to notice the gifts that God has given you every day, you begin to rebuild healthy pathways in your brain. So rather than constantly looking for things that you want and things you don't have but you need or constantly bemoaning the fact that you you didn't get something that you thought you deserved, you begin to look around and see all the things in life that you don't deserve but you get anyway. And very quickly it begins to change how you see and how you look at the world. There's one particular mother that is always amazing is just is so compelling to me. And every year around the holidays I, I often share this portion of the story being the life of Mary the mother of Jesus. It's found in Luke, the first chapter, and it's Mary's response to the fact that she has been told by an angel that she will be the mother of God's son. Now we're told, we don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us, but we're told that Mary's somewhere between 16, maybe a little bit younger, and 19, 20 years of age right here. So she's this young girl, her whole life is out in front of her, and she's engaged to be married to Joseph, right? She's a part of a small community of people on the side of the Sea of Galilee. Everyone probably knows everyone's business here. And all of a sudden, an angel shows up and tells Mary, Mary, you are going to be the, the son of the Messiah, the son of God. And there's a lot, of, a lot of negatives Mary could have focused on. She could have focused on a reputation that was be smashed, her engagement to Joseph, her own youth and opportunities to kind of do a few things she wanted to do before she became a mother. All those things have been taken from her and God didn't even ask her. But what amazes me about Mary is how she responds. We have her response in Luke, the first chapter, and verse 46, beginning. And Mary says this, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And his name and holy is his name. You know, Mary could have just as easily said, the Almighty has done terrible things to me. But she chose to have an attitude of gratitude. She chose to create a habit or act on a habit that I think had to be a part of who she was. She said that God has done these things for me. She immediately was programmed to see the opportunities in front of her and not the obstacles. And the way that that happens... It's when we develop an attitude of gratitude, when we develop a habit of being gracious and thankful to God for the things he's put in our life. So let me just give you quick, three quick things that I think every one of us, don't have to be a mom here today to do any of these things, but three things that we can do to kind of, to put, to put gratitude to work in your life. Number one, every day, pray that God will reveal to you the good things that he's put in your life. If you don't see them right now, just in your quiet time with God, whenever that might be in a day, say, God, help me to see the good that you've put in my life, because I'll guarantee you, I don't care who you are this morning, every one of us has way more good in our life than bad. We just don't notice it. The second thing I want to challenge you to do is, when, when you start to see those things, rather than just say, oh yeah, that's something, and then move on, think about it. Think about, how would my life be different without this thing? whatever that might be. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's an opportunity. Maybe it's a talent that God gave you. Whatever it might be that comes to your mind at that moment. How is my life better? How is my life blessed? How are other people's lives blessed? Because I have been given this thing. And the third thing, turn that back around and thank God for what he's given you. You might say, well, Jason, that's just, that's nice. Trust me, this works. This works. If some of you are sick and tired of seeing the world as a glass half empty, if you're sick and tired of looking around the world and just seeing all the brokenness, if you're sick and tired of being depressed about everything in life, there's an opportunity for you to see things differently. You can look and see at the, the possibilities that are available, the good that is all around us, and the way that God has gifted you to do something great in this world for His glory. Mary could see that. And every one of us can as well if we change the way that we look at the world. And and you know what? This kind of just segues into habit number three that I want to look at this morning. And that is the habit of prayer. Because prayer is indeed a habit, and I'll agree with you, it's not the easiest habit to form. It's certainly an easy idea to throw around. We always say to people, hey, I'll be praying for you, or sending prayers your way, or please pray for us, right? We use that language a lot. And I think most of us know really how to pray when there's something wrong, like if someone's sick, or if there's a crisis in the world, or something kind of overwhelms us, it kind of drives us to our knees, we use that language. And we know how to go and, and have a conversation with God in prayer about those things, But what about about a relationship with God in prayer? How do we become transformed through prayer? Jesus spent a lot of his life in prayer. and, And in fact, a lot of effective people throughout the scripture, we find that one thing that's common, a common habit in their lives, is they were people of prayer. They were people that went to God. Maybe... Maybe one of the most powerful examples of prayer out of a mother is is a mother whose name was Hannah. Hannah, kind of like Abigail, found herself in a difficult situation. She was one of two wives married to a man by the name of Elkanah. And from what we know of Elkanah, he was a good man, and he took good care of Hannah. But the other wife was able to have multiple children, and Hannah had none. And the other wife used that leverage to kind of throw uh, throw comments at Hannah and River about not being able to have children. And of course, this, this just devastated Hannah's self-esteem and her image of herself in a world where childbearing was such an important part of being a woman. What does Hannah do? Does she become depressed? Does she strike out at her husband? Does she wander off into the wilderness? No, she doesn't do that. What she does is she earnestly goes to God in prayer. Just beautiful story. In the temple, praying before the Lord, and she's so earnest in prayer that the high priest walks in, thinks she's drunk. She said, I'm not drunk, buddy. I'm serious about what I'm going to the Lord with. And God hears that. And he blesses her with a son. You might know his name. He's one of the most powerful examples of a godly man in the Old Testament. His name is Samuel. God used him to do an amazing work in his lifetime. When that boy is just five years old or so, she takes him back to the temple, and she commits him to a life of service. And I guarantee you, it wasn't just Samuel's beginning that was bathed in prayer. But it no doubt was his entire life that was bathed in his mother's prayers. And look what God was able to do with that young man. Like Hannah, we all face difficult challenges in life. They look different than hers, and we're in a different place. You may have a, be in a different season in life altogether. But when we seek God's will and His guidance and His power in a situation, it transforms how we look at life. And our circumstances may not always yield the desired outcome. Hannah got a son, but there was also a challenge that came along with that, right? Because she said, God, I'm going to give this son back to you. And she had to make that very difficult decision to carry through on her word She was willing to do that. I think that God really wants to hear from us. The disciples, as they watched Jesus pray, recognized that there was something about Jesus' prayers that that was different than their own. And they came up and they asked Jesus. They said, Jesus, teach us to pray. We want to have the kind of communication with God that you do. And I wonder don't know, I never heard the disciples pray either. But I wonder if the disciples prayed a lot like we do, where they're asking God for stuff and kind of talking about things that are just obvious. And, and maybe Jesus' example prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer is a, is a really kind of powerful reminder of the kind of prayer life that God wants us to have. Because in the Lord's Prayer, what Jesus is really doing is he's focusing disciples not on their needs, but on their, their Heavenly Father. Not on their desires, but his ability to give things to them and provide for them. Not on what their dreams and plans for the future are, but how their lives can build into his kingdom. Church, I I think sometimes we've, we've bought a bill of goods and we believe that we really find meaning and purpose in life when we're happy in this life. And I think the Bible tells us something very different. It says that we find meaning and purpose in life when we're living our lives according to the pattern of our creator. When we're living our lives the way God called us to live. That doesn't mean it's going to be perfect, but it means it's a whole lot better than what we come up with. You guys know the prayer, but let me just run through the elements of it. Jesus began with our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Not just an introduction to God, but but a recognition that his name is great and mighty. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know, God, that you're kind of running the show. These are all transformational thoughts right up in the head of asking give us this day our daily bread. Yes, we know that what we have in this world isn't aren't things that we've actually created. They've been given to us. Sometimes in a industrial and in economy and like what we live in, we we think that other people give it to us, but really all the source for everything we have in this world comes from him, right? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We desperately need forgiveness. And and, and so we go to God and we say, help me to have the attitude you have, Father, towards sin. Help me to be willing to forgive other people because you've forgiven me. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. acknowledging in the end of that prayer that really this world and our lives are about His purpose, not our desire. Which kind of leads me to the fourth of these habits. This one's a little different this morning, but I felt like that we needed to have this conversation because if there's anyone who gets worked in a family, it's moms. They do a majority of, of the household chores and they just seem to have that kind of innate desire to make everything work together and I appreciate that so much. My dad used to laugh about that with my mom. My mom was a hard worker and he like, sit down Diana, it's not going to get done today, right? My dad had to make my mom sit down sometimes because it was just this drive within her to do things. And I think that we don't respect the important place that rest deserves in our lives. I was reading a while ago through Mark. And I came across this response of Jesus to a group of people that were jawing about how his disciples had done this or that on the Sabbath. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that one of the Ten Commandments was remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And by the time that Jesus and his disciples were living in the world, there was a whole group of rules that were involved around keeping the Sabbath day holy, keeping it set apart. They had stakes at appropriate distance from their house so that you would only go so far. That was a Sabbath day journey. And there were technicalities about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. And these guys were were challenging Jesus about an activity that. disciples had done saying it wasn't lawful. I've read through this text a dozen times and I never really understood what Jesus was saying in his response. But he says in verse 27, then he being Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You know, sometimes we get in our minds that, that we're doing the things that God's called us to do in the word because He wants us to do them because we're doing our duty to God, that we're walking the line that God's given us to walk. But Jesus looked at this whole discussion 180 degrees differently. Jesus said, look, guys, God didn't create the Sabbath because he needed you guys to stop for a day. He didn't create the Sabbath because he's tired of watching you guys work from heaven. It's not a day off for the angels. Okay, guys, no one's leaving the house. We're good today. We can take the... No, that's not the reason. God gave you the Sabbath and commanded that you keep a day of rest set aside for you. You need rest. So many of the biblical principles that we want to push against and say to God, God, I don't believe in that. God, I don't like that. God, I don't like that. I don't want to live my life that way. God told us to do it that way because he knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows that's the exact way that we're going to find meaning and purpose and happiness in life. And when we choose to do them the other way, it's not he that is hurt. It's ourselves. And rest is certainly an important subject in that discussion. How much do we rest? Many of us find ourselves going seven days a week. Maybe we work a job throughout the week. We catch up things on Saturdays, Sundays, or another busy day. And it just seems like one week rolls into another week, into another week, into another week. And, and the result of not getting the rest that we need is that we begin to become mentally fatigued. We, we, we begin to deal with anxiety more. We begin to deal with more depression All the things that our society today struggles with, many of them are from not having enough rest in our lives. I know you might wonder, well, why did did God cancel the day of rest then? (laughs) It's a good point. The Ten Commandments were not just a law for the morality of the children of Israel, but they were also a civil law for the children of Israel. And everyone who lived in Israel automatically, by mandate of the law, got the day off. If you go to Israel today and you visit on the Sabbath. Everything is closed. They don't cook food that day. If you are in a hotel, there's food that's left where they cooked the day before. The elevators don't even work. You have to take the stairs, all right? That is powerful motivation if you're living on the 36th floor just to stay in your room for the day. Um, um, the, the, the world just kind of, kind of closes down around, around uh, society. But God knew that when Christianity came into the world, it wasn't just going to be in Israel. It was going to go to the ends of the earth. And there were a lot of people living in Rome and in in Spain and in the Far East that would not have the opportunity to take a day of rest. So he didn't reinstitute that, one of the Ten Commandments, as he did the other nine. But that doesn't mean it's not important. So what are some ways that we can find rest even in the midst of our busy lives? Maybe one of the best ways we can do it is just to protect our sleep. I read an article a couple weeks ago that said that most Americans are somewhere between three and four hours in the negative on the amount of sleep they need a night. And some of that's because we can't help it. If you're a mom with little kids in the house that wake you up in the middle of the night, you know this, right? You've got you've to take care of those babies. But but for a lot of us, sometimes it's just choices we make. And so here's some quick ways that we can protect our rest. We can keep a bedtime and a wake-up time consistent. I don't know if you know this, but. We talked about habits today. So your body likes routine. It functions well in routine. When you go to bed at a specific time and you get up at a specific time, even if you're not a morning person, you're going to do a whole lot better than if you aren't. Second thing, maybe put up your devices. Some of us kind of unwind at night by grabbing the phone and start to scroll. And I know that like the screens are now yellow at night because that's supposed to help us sleep. But the screen color is never the thing that kept me up. I don't know about you guys, but it's the stuff on the screen that keeps me up, right? Either I'm entertained by what I'm watching, and I want to watch another reel, or I want to watch another YouTube video, or I get upset about something I read or something somebody posts, and there's this flood of emotions as I'm lying there in bed with no place to go except to keep me awake. Might be an easy solution, just to shut off the TV, put up the phone an hour before bedtime. Maybe... Maybe repeat a restful activity every night before it's time to go to sleep. Maybe that's stretching for you. Don't laugh at me, but I'm going to tell you what it is for me. Every morning I wake up and I pray. Every night before I go to bed, I pray. And I know what you're thinking. You can't stay awake to watch a movie, Jason. How do you stay awake for prayer? I don't. I pray other times throughout the day, too. But I kind of like the idea of falling asleep talking to my savior and my creator. He knows I'm tired. He knows the limitations of my human ability. And you know, sometimes when my mind is is bent on spooling out of control about things that I want to control and can't or situations I've got to tackle or things that I didn't get done today that I should have done yesterday but I'm going to have to do tomorrow, It's so much more helpful for me to just lay it at the foot of the cross and say, God, help me to get done what I need to get done. I find that I get so much more restful sleep if I lay the phone on the nightstand and I talk to my Father in the last moments of my day. We're going to close with this fifth habit. It may be one of the most important habits, and it's this one. The habit of reading Scripture. I'm not necessarily saying just pulling Scripture in from the written word, but you might be listening to it, you might be sharing it. You know, I, I think that we sometimes don't realize just how big of a deal little moments of Scripture can have in the lives of children and in our own lives. If you read on in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11 chapter is this Chapter of faith, right? And there's all these great, iconic people that are mentioned here. And among these great and iconic people is one of the greatest leaders ever to live, and his name was Moses, a man that at 80 years of age was was tasked by God of going back into the land of Egypt and leading possibly a million to two million people from the land of captivity into the land of freedom through a wilderness and a desert for 40 years. This is a man who is a super highly capable man. And in this text in Hebrews 11, it talks about by faith, by faith, by faith, and talking about the importance of a faith component in the life of of, of a person. And so it says, "...by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin for a season." He, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. We're like, yeah, that, that Moses, that was a pretty impressive dude. Yes, he was. But sometimes we haven't stopped and thought about the story of Moses. You remember how the Pharaoh said that baby boys should die and the two midwives didn't? Well, then he, he decided he would just tell The women themselves, if you have a baby boy, you've got to throw him into the Nile River. Well, a couple had a little baby and they weren't about to do that. They kept him as long as they could. But as he got older and he started making more noise, they decided they were going to have to do what they were called to do. And so they built a little basket and they sealed it good with pitch and they put his favorite blanket in and they slipped baby Moses into the basket and they floated him down the Nile River while an older sister watchfully observed from a distance... And as God so often does, when people go out on faith, that little basket bounced and banged its way down the reed-covered banks of the Nile until it happened to float in right where the daughter of the Pharaoh was swimming with her, with her, with her buddies. She looked in the little basket. It's a cute little baby, and who can say no to a cute little baby? She wanted to take it home. The only problem was it wasn't hers. She had no way to feed it. They didn't have formula invented yet. And so Miriam wisely steps out, and she says this in Exodus 2. Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women to nurse the child? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. And so the girl went, and she called the child's mother, Moses' mom. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you wages. This is one of the only women I know that got paid to raise her own kid. Right here. Um, That's a great story. And so the woman took the child, and she nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. And yet... Hebrews says that Moses chose not to be an Egyptian, but to be a Hebrew. Not to follow the gods of Egypt, but to follow the one true God. Moms, dads, family, your influence with your children under five years of age is so much more powerful than you will ever realize. When that mama took that boy and dropped him off in the court of the Pharaoh, he probably was no older than five years old, but in his heart, the patterns of who was God and who he was going to serve and who he really was were already written. And so when he's 40 years old and he's a man and he steps out into the world and he sees the trauma that's going on in the world around him, what is written in his heart says for him to follow God, and he does. We don't hardly know the names of the pharaohs from the period of time of the exodus, There's almost nobody that doesn't know the name of Moses because a godly mother had to have poured into her son the word of God. This morning, we thank you moms for what you do. And as those of you who are raising younger children at home right now, as a little bit older guy, I just want to say to you that everything you're doing matters. You might not think grabbing two grubby hands at dinner and leading a prayer really matters. You might not think holding a squirmy little toddler on your lap and opening up the Bible storybook to read a story from the Bible when they're staring at the ceiling is sinking in. But listen to me, it does. And it will give them the greatest possible opportunity to make the best choices someday in the future. Moms, we thank you. We pray for all of you. Parents, let's make sure that in our homes we have a foundation of good habits because they grow into good people. Let's stand together, church. If you have a need this morning, you know you can come as we sing.